0: This morning we hear the words of the story from Mark, Luke, and John. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robe sitting at the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him? Go, tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But the words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the woman. At that, Peter and the other disciples went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then also went in and saw and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. Let's pray.
1: Father, we thank you that we serve a a risen Savior God, thank you for sending your only son, Jesus, into this world to die for our sins, to win victory over Satan, to defeat death through his resurrection. God, we thank you that that we get to enjoy life and celebrate hope because of Jesus' new life. God, thank you that Through Jesus' resurrection, we too have hope of our own resurrection. We celebrate with joy and gladness this morning that our Savior lives. God, would you remind us each and every day, not just once a year, but each and every day of the centrality of the cross and the resurrection. May we be cross-centered and Resurrection-centered people, may our lives be infused with the hope that we feel this morning all year long. We ask, God, that you would open up our understanding as we look at your scriptures this morning. We ask that you would speak with us. May your spirit open up our hearts to receive your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to invite you to join me in Luke chapter 24. In Luke, in the 24th chapter. And in this story here that we're about to look at this morning, we're going to read of a stranger. Now, maybe when you were little or when your kids were little, you you were warned. Don't talk to strangers. Now, some of you have no inability or no ability whatsoever to follow that instruction. You, you've never met a stranger in your life. Those of you with kids who maybe had a mom or dad that were that way, you know the um, let's say frustration that maybe comes along with uh, your parent just randomly having a forty-five minute conversation at an amusement park with somebody that they've never met, and all of a sudden they're exchanging phone numbers, and that person's over for dinner the next night. And it's just can be kind of a little bit weird if you're not an extrovert or not, that's not kind of wired into your, who you are. Well, for these two men who were on a walk one day, we're going to read in Luke 24 about their encounter with a stranger. And it's a good thing that they're mom and dad had not told them, don't talk to strangers, because this conversation changed their lives. We pick up the story in verse 13, Luke 24, verse 13, and it says, now that same day. What day? Well, it was Resurrection Sunday. The events that Ben just read to us about had just taken place that morning, and it was now most likely the afternoon. And it says, on that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. Now, I want us as best as we can to put ourselves in their Sandals, as it were, to, to enter into what they might have been feeling and experiencing and reflecting upon. Their Savior, the one whom they had pinned all of their hopes upon, the one that they had been following for several years now, the one whom they thought was the Messiah that was going to set them free from Roman oppression, deliver them, just as the prophets had foretold. This Messiah now all of a sudden, was dead. And it says in verse 14 that on this journey to Emmaus, they were conversing, they were running through everything that had taken place over the past few days. The text indicates even that it was an intense discussion, maybe heated and spirited in different ways. They probably had been talking about the Passover that Jesus spent with his disciples in the upper room and how he had washed their feet and had this intimate time of breaking of bread and drinking of the wine. They probably spoke about his last hours with his disciples and then going to the garden and hearing stories of Jesus' deep heartfelt prayer to the Father. They probably talked about the arrest in the garden How Peter had cut off a guy's ear, and Jesus had stayed his hand and told him to stop fighting. Jesus had willingly went along with the soldiers. He seemed resigned to his death. He didn't fight back at his trial. What a mockery. He didn't put up an argument. He didn't bring witnesses on his own behalf to try to fight. He just just let him go. They probably talked about the violence of his death, the inhumane manner in which he was treated, the scourging, the crown of thorns. There was no need for that. The mockery, the verbal and emotional abuse on top of the physical that was beyond words. Imagine the emotions that they're experiencing right now. As they're making this dusty journey toward Emmaus, what do you think they're feeling? Well, you can go ahead, shout it out. What, what, what emotions would you be feeling if you were in their shoes? Sadness, I heard sadness. What would you be feeling? Confusion. Hopelessness, yes. Fear. Disappointment. All these things were, were running through their minds and their hearts as they made this journey. Verse 15 tells us of an addition to the story. Another traveler. And while they were discussing and arguing, or the word... Words could be reflecting or discussing. Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. This is an amazing story, by the way. And. And an amazing things, a thing occurs. A stranger just appears out of nowhere. That in and of itself must have been unusual. We don't know exactly where Emmaus was, so we don't know exactly what the journey was like, but we have to imagine that it, they were not fighting their way through crowded streets where people were everywhere. The impression is here that they're out in a countryside, they're by themselves, and all of a sudden this, this stranger materializes and begin to walk with them. Have you ever you ever been in a place I mean, I'm sure you have we all have where you're having an intense discussion or an important discussion with somebody maybe it was even your spouse and somebody else just wanders up and has a seat there and you're like can't you see that like there's something important being talked about here this is sort of a intimate discussion or maybe it's a straight up fight and and all of a sudden there's someone there that just is like clueless is to, the, like, the, you just want to be alone and talk, and they don't really belong there. Like, we've all experienced that. Again, as always, if you haven't experienced it, you're probably the person who jumps into the discussion. I'm just, statistically, you probably are. And so, all of a sudden now, there's this third person there. They have to be even more, like, they're probably agitated that, that, that there's someone who's like, hey, guys, can I walk with you? Because they're feeling all of these things that you just, you just shared and more. And verse 16 says something really unusual. It says they were prevented from recognizing who this stranger was. The text says no more than that. It, it, it indicates, it sort of leaves us to presume that, that maybe it was God that did this work of keeping them from seeing and understanding the resurrected Christ, which, which lets us know that maybe there is something about our resurrection bodies that we just don't fully understand, that, that we are still who we, we are. We're, we're not going to be somebody else. But th- this is the second time this has happened, that Jesus has appeared and was not recognized, first with Mary and now here with these two so far unnamed disciples. Just as a side note, though, we're once again reminded of the personal nature of Jesus. He could have been doing anything at that moment. I mean, he had just risen from the dead. I mean, just risen from the dead. And he could have been with anybody and doing anything. And yet, and yet, he was with these two disciples, one of them, we're not given a name. And the other one is only mentioned in the Scriptures here in this passage. I, I'm just reminded that Jesus, he's, he doesn't need to be where the crowds are. He doesn't need to be where the accolades are, where the attention and the fame. He doesn't need to be with the somebodies. He walks alongside the nobodies. He walks alongside those who are downcast, who are hurting. This is not new for him. This has been his life and ministry, to sit with the castaways, to sit with the unnamed ones, to sit with the unmentionables, to touch and heal and to eat with and to be with. I want you to know this morning that there's nobody in this room who is too insignificant, For Jesus, Jesus longs to be with you, just as he walked alongside of these two followers. And so in verse 17, the stranger speaks. What are you discussing so intently as you walk along? He was not oblivious. He saw that there was great passion and emotion in what they were talking about. He understood that the subject matter was of a serious nature. The question stops them dead in their tracks. Verse 17, the second half says, They stopped walking and looked discouraged. They couldn't believe their ears. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there. The last few days. You can hear the emotion bubbling over. The emotions of where is our Savior? The frustration of this stranger's question. While Jerusalem was a big city, everybody knew what was going on here. This execution and this trial was very public, and, and Jesus had, had a had a large following. Everybody knew. And so they're frustrated, they're surprised, they're astounded, and you can hear the emotion bubbling over. Where have you been? What, what hole did you just climb out of that you don't know what's been going on? And so the stranger replies in verse 19, what things? So they answer, they indulge him here, and they say, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people. Verse 20, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. And Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of, our, some of the women from our group astounded us. They they arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. They had great hopes, For this one whom they believed to be the Messiah. They said he was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people. They had seen his mighty works. They had staked their life on the fact that he was who he claimed to be, the promised one of the Old Testament. Incidentally, if any of you have been watching the show, The Chosen, you they do a good job of capturing just how, how much each of these disciples and followers, how their lives were consumed with following Christ. They do a great job of picturing now what it looked like day to day for them to have walked away from their jobs and even their families so that they could be fully devoted to Christ. And we get a sense that day in and day out for three years, these followers, now I realize that some came along at different points in his ministry, but these followers were all in. Just imagine, imagine the disappointment. One writer said, this is why the crucifixion was so devastating. It wasn't just that Jesus had been the bearer of their hopes and he was now dead and gone. It was sharper than that. If Jesus had been the one to redeem Israel, he should have been defeating the pagans, not dying at their hands. Notice in these verses we read, all the emotions. You, you brought some of them out here. Verse 17 says, uh, they looked discouraged. Or one translation says, they stopped short. Sadness written across their faces. In verse 21, you get the sense, it says, we were hoping... The tense of the verb there indicates that, that that hope has faded. We had hoped that he was the one, but now I don't know. In fact, we didn't we didn't read back in, um, in in verse eleven how the disciples responded to the reports of the women. Which let's just let's just make note here that it was the women who showed up at the tomb on Easter morning. I think the disciples, I think it indicates that they had sort of succumbed to that hopelessness. But the women who were following Jesus were there in hope, I think. Verse 11 of twenty-four, chapter 24 here says, When the women reported back to the apostles, it says, These words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. There was sadness. There was disappointment. There was confusion You can read that in in, in these verses and what he just shared with the stranger. Besides all this, besides everything that was happening, then some of our women went to the tomb and found it empty. So there's surprise there. There's astonishment. But there's lingering doubt. They had reported that they had seen a vision of the angels who said he was alive, but we didn't see him. What a roller coaster of ups and downs, sadness and discouragement, empty tomb, maybe. Ah, He's nowhere to be found. Discouragement, doubt, fear, the irony of the narrative, one writer says, is that they are in the midst of what they desired and what the others had not experienced. This is an interesting feature of the story because all of us are in on the irony as we read it here today. We recognize that the one that they are so so discouraged about not having seen is the one in their midst. The one in whom they set all their hopes is walking beside them. This morning, I want you to know that the one you seek is right here too. Each and every one of us are tempted, and some of us are not only tempted, but have given in to that temptation to try to find Hope where it's not meant to be found. Trying to find meaning and purpose and life in that which is futile, that which is empty. The hope that they were looking for was right beside them and they didn't even know it. I want you to know this morning whether you realize it or not, Jesus is the one that you're looking for and He is right there. And so, the stranger responds. In fact, the stranger's response met their emotions. The language here indicates frustration and disappointment. Look what he says, you fools. He calls him a name. He says, you fools. How can you be so slow of heart to believe everything the prophets have spoken? Don't you see that these things had to happen that the Messiah had to suffer and only then enter into His glory? <laughs> they, these men were even more confused than when they began their journey. If they were like the average Jew, they had probably studied Scripture from childhood and would have known it quite well. Yet they didn't recognize that today's uh, this, the, the weekend's events had been prophesied in the Old Testament. So the stranger began to explain. And I love verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall, or well, there's no wall, they're walking, but to have been a fly on their shoulder as they walked along, to have some hidden camera, to capture this conversation. He began to show them with the book of, books of Moses. That's the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And walk through the prophets as to what they had to say about the Messiah. This is pretty cool. For the first time ever, the Old Testament was being explained from the other side of the cross. And Jesus himself, this stranger was connecting the dots. You see, my brothers and sisters, the suffering Christ is the key to understanding the entire Bible. And I would love to imagine what he would have shared with them. But it tells us that he started in the beginning, which is a very good place to start. Maybe he began with, in the beginning, God those very first words of the Bible. Maybe he explained that this God who's existed for all eternity, lovingly formed man and woman in his image as royal sons and daughters of the Most High. And he brought them into this loving relationship to give us meaning, purpose, and to lovingly know him. The Garden that glorious place where oneness with God was enjoyed. But as in all good stories, there's a villain. And the villain of the story that the stranger was sharing, he goes by several names, Lucifer, Angel of Light, Satan, the devil. No matter what you call him, it doesn't change the fact that he wants to thwart the plan of God. And he comes onto the scene promising great pleasures to those first humans, Adam and Eve, if they will just do things their own way, reject God's way, and do it his way. And so scripture tells us that they ate of the fruit from which they were forbidden to eat, and sin came into this world. They knew death for the first time. But we see even in those first verses of Scripture, of the the high of creation to the low of rebellion, that God makes it clear in Genesis 3.15 that He was going to make a way for things to be made right. He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and He will strike your head and you will strike His heel. The first promise of a victorious Messiah On the story when I have to imagine that he talked about Noah and the flood that destroyed the earth because of the sin of God's people, because of the rebellion that was so great and the wickedness. His story likely touched on several of the other key figures there in Genesis. He certainly would have talked about Abraham, how God came to this nomadic wanderer, farmer, And promised that through him, he was going to make a great nation. He made these promises unilaterally. And he says, listen, I'm going to make this happen. And in Abraham's old age, God gives him a son. A son by the name of Isaac. And then God would reiterate the promise to his son, Jacob. That one day... Through their lineage, through their seed, through their children, all the world would be blessed. Still not crystal clear in their minds, but this understanding that God was going to do something to undo the wrongs that had been done. And as, as the stranger began to walk through the Old Testament, have to imagine he talked about Moses and God setting His people free, and how that was a foreshadowing of the deliverance that God wanted to do in our own hearts of setting us free from bondage to sin. Maybe He touched an exodus on the Passover lamb, the lamb that was slain and whose blood, as it covered the doorposts of God's people, allowed God to pass by them. Perhaps, It was that conversation where Jesus identified himself as the Passover lamb, the one whose blood, whose shed blood made it possible for our sins to be passed over. Maybe he touched in Leviticus about the sacrificial system and that atonement can only be made through a sacrifice. Or maybe in Numbers, he he reminded them of the story of the bronze serpent and and all these these men and women who had been bitten needed to look upon the, servant so that, the serpent so that they might live. Perhaps it was there that Jesus identified himself as the one who must be looked upon for life. On and on, he probably went through Joshua and Judges and began to talk about the kings. And, and all throughout it is this history of God pursuing his people, God bringing salvation and hope and healing to his people, and his people for a while being thankful and then turning and running and doing their own thing. This was the history of God's people throughout those books of the Bible. It was God pursuing them and them running away. He even brought them kings at their own request to rule over them. And even that went poorly. But yet God still repeated his promises one day. And this promise began to take on a little more clarity as the prophets came on the scene. To begin warning people and calling them back to God. And perhaps this stranger as he walked with Cleopas and this other disciple. Who by the way, they they weren't among the twelve. These were two followers That we just we just don't know anything about. As he reminds them of the prophets, perhaps he referred to Jeremiah chapter 20, that the Messiah would be mocked and abused, and say, Listen, this had to be so. Perhaps he cited Zechariah 3:9, where it tells us that God would pay for the sin of his people in a single day. And I have to imagine, as the stranger continues his story, that their light bulbs were starting to go on. That they were beginning to make the connection that all of Scripture had been pointing to this moment. That rather than this being a weekend of devastation and hopelessness, that perhaps it's exactly what God planned so that He could redeem His people. I have to imagine He even quoted Isaiah 53. Yet He Himself bore our sicknesses and He carried our pains. But we in turn regarded Him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We we all have turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of of us all. And I cannot imagine the stranger recounting this story and these words from the prophet without tears forming in his eyes. Those wounds which were still so fresh from only days before being flogged with nails being driven from through his hands and feet, in the agony of that suffering, had to have made the stranger's voice crack. You see, these two men walking with a stranger, like everybody else in Israel, had been reading the Bible through the wrong end of the telescope. They'd been seeing it as the long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering, but it was instead the story of how God would redeem Israel through suffering. Through, in particular, the suffering which would be taken on himself by Israel's representative, the Messiah. You see, the Old Testament only makes sense with Jesus. And the opposite is true. Jesus only makes sense with the Old Testament. What a walk that must have been. What a Bible lesson that must have been. As they walked with the stranger. Well, the text tells us that they finally arrived at Emmaus, and the stranger acted as if he was going to continue down the road, but Cleopas and his companion invited him to stay. They, they had likely been journeying back to one of their houses, and it was late, and he needed something to eat, so they invited him over. And I love what we read next. In verse 30, it says, It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. It's hard to say exactly what it was, but this stranger sat down to eat with them. And this would have been unusual for the guest to reach for the bread first and break the bread. That's that's the host's job. Perhaps it was what they knew about the upper room and what Jesus had done with his disciples. Perhaps for the first time as he reached for the bread, perhaps his tunic slipped up and They saw the scars. The text doesn't really tell us. But when he broke bread, the language is so similar to the upper room. It's clearly intentional by Luke. When the bread was broken, all of a sudden, they knew who they were with. The light bulbs went on, and they were shocked. They had been walking with Jesus and they didn't know it. My brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that no matter where your journey in life has you right now or where you've been, Jesus has been right there whether you knew it or not. And he longs for you to see him for who he is. Their eyes were opened. It makes us think back to the first meal in the Bible. There is no mistaking the intentionality of God through Luke in this language. Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7. The woman took some of the fruit and ate it, and she gave it to her husband, and he ate it. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked. The tale was told over and over as the beginning of the woes that had come upon The human race, death itself was traced to that very meal, that moment of rebellion. Now Luke describes the first meal of the new creation. He took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And the eyes of them both were opened. And they recognized him. The undoing of death. The undoing of rebellion. They discovered, sitting there with Jesus, that the long curse had been broken. It was beginning to dawn on them that death itself had been defeated. God's new creation brimming with life and joy, a new possibility. It's now burst upon a world of decay and sorrow. And then we see something that makes us scratch our head in that moment Jesus vanished, just like that. He was gone. doesn't tell us how, whether it was like, poof, he disappeared, or whether they're, they're hugging each other or celebrating, and all of a sudden he just slipped out of the room quietly. All of a sudden he was just gone. And so verse 32, they reflected, and it says, they said, there weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road and explaining the Scriptures? We knew something was going on. God was doing a work in our hearts, and we didn't fully understand. And the whole while, we were with Jesus. Well, there's a postscript to the story, an epilogue, if you will. Within the hour, they were making their seven-mile journey back to Jerusalem. Whatever had brought them to this house to have dinner, uh, now was, that was those plans had been scrapped. And they were on their way back to tell this story. This was too good. All the disciples, most of the followers were still in and around the area of Jerusalem. They had to get the word out. They couldn't help but tell. And so the text tells us that's exactly what they did. And While they were still talking, in verse 36, Jesus himself stood in their midst. He had a knack of just coming and going here. And he said to them, peace be with you. But they were startled and terrified, and they thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them. (laughs) And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Verse 41, And while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them for something to eat. which I think it's, it's pretty funny. Just This moment of emotion. He's like, guys, I could use a bite to eat here. I'm a little bit hungry. And then he goes on in verse 44 and says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Hmm. Verse 46 goes on to say, He also said to them, This is what is written, The Messiah will suffer and rise from dead the third day in repentance, for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things what a day. I venture to guess that none of us have had a conversation with a stranger quite like these two men did on that day to Emmaus. A day that started out with such hopelessness and discouragement and sorrow and fear and sadness, ended in astonishment and joy in amazement and hope. And with, with enlightened eyes to see this is exactly what the story of God said it would be. This is exactly how God said it would unfold, and it did. He kept his promises. But it didn't end there. He says, you are the witnesses who will proclaim this story. You see, my brothers and sisters, there's not, there's not one of us I'm making an assumption here. I think it's a fair one. There's not one of us who would have had an experience like Cleopas and this other individual, this other disciple, and not told anybody. There's not one of us who would have walked with Jesus for three years in and out and gone through the emotions of seeing him crucified, seeing him die upon the cross, such an agonizing death, And go through the discouragement of Saturday, the hopelessness, the fear, and the amazement and the astonishment of seeing him rise again and have him explain it all to us on a seven-mile journey and keep our mouths shut about it. Not one of us. This would be a story told. We would have converted the biggest introvert among us would be walking up to random strangers and say, can you imagine? I want to tell you what happened to me the other day. Your kids would be back there hiding in the shadows. Oh, here goes dad again. And that's exactly what the book of Acts tells us in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John say, listen. They're telling the the officials who are trying to tell them to shut up. They say, listen, you can tell us what you want. You can throw us into jail, but we can't help but speak of the things that we have seen and heard. We can't help ourselves. This changed our lives. We went from utter lostness to being set free and having life. We went from death, separation from God, to life. We went from hopelessness to hope, from defeat and discouragement to joy and intimacy with God. We can't stay quiet about this. So one afternoon, two men went for a walk heading to Emmaus. They were forlorn and dejected, full of sorrow and hopelessness. But along the way, they met a stranger, and their lives changed forever. Because that's what the resurrected Jesus does. He changes lives. For those of us who know him, this story serves as a model, a model for a great deal of what it means to be a Christian. From that day to this, the slow, sad dismay at the failure of human hopes, the turning to someone who might or might not help, the discovery that in Scripture all the expected all unexpected, that that there lays the keys that might unlock the central mysteries that might enable us to find the truth and the sudden realization that Jesus Himself is present with us, warming our hearts with His truth, showing us Himself as the bread that is broken for us. But for some of you today, I realize that Jesus is still a stranger to you. Some of you here are here today and, and this Jesus is, is, is unrecognizable and is as foreign to you as, it was, as he was to Cleopas and the other disciple. Jesus is not a friend. He's not a savior. He, he, he's, not, he's not someone who, who you know or love. He's, he's just a stranger. You, you might be curious about him. He might be intriguing. He, he, you may despise him. I, I don't know. But I want you to know this morning that Jesus doesn't want to be a stranger in your life. And whether you recognize it or not, as we've said, that stranger has been near you, walking alongside of you. Whether you've paid him any attention, whether you've bothered to listen to him, he has been there calling out to you, letting you know that he is the one that you're looking for. It's not going to be found in any, any addiction, any mind-numbing entertainment, any great amassing of financial wealth, none of it. The hope that you're looking for is that stranger who's walking beside you. And perhaps you feel a deep sense of that hopelessness. Maybe you understand a little bit of how these disciples felt. You've gone through heartache that has rattled you to the core, and you're at the end of yourself. I want you to know that this stranger can change your life. Not make all the hard stuff go away. Jesus never promised that. And we never see that in Scripture. But he did promise us for hope when we do go through the hard things. He did promise us that he would redeem the hard things so that, that, that life would proceed out of death. That flowers could bloom from the thorniest moments of your life. That's what Jesus can do he offers forgiveness of sins. That is, after all, why he died. He didn't just die because of an angry mob that got a hold of him. He died because that sin that took place in the garden, that sin is ours as well. Through our actions and through our just our nature of being born as humans in this world, we have sin that needs to be paid for. And the Bible says that Jesus went to the cross to take that for us, to be our substitute, to go in our place, and that through faith in Him, truly believing that He died in our place and that He rose again from the grave, we can receive forgiveness from sins. We can experience the hope that shone through to the disciples that resurrection afternoon. This morning, I don't know... What comes to your mind when you hear there's a stranger after you? (laughs) Those words are not usually met with hope or joy or any comfortable feelings. But I want you to know this stranger has a name and he's Jesus. And while he may be a stranger to you, you're not a stranger to him. He formed you and shed his love upon you before the foundation of the world and has been there every step of the way. And I hope, oh, I pray, I've been praying all week that you would meet this stranger and you would realize that he has a name, Jesus, that he gave himself for you and he wants you to know him in the most unbelievable ways that anybody could ever be known. He wants you to know that he loves you. He wants you to know that, that the hope and the freedom and forgiveness that he offers can be yours through faith in Him. Whether this is an old story that has long been a source of hope for you, may you in a fresh way be given joy knowing Jesus' pursuit of you and that the entire Scriptures speak of Him. And may it drive you even further into His Word, even this week, to see how the prophets... Moses, all spoke of him. But if you're the person this morning who doesn't know Jesus, we would love to talk to you even more about how you might meet this stranger and come to know him, the one who has loved you throughout all eternity. This is why we celebrate Easter, not so that we could get dressed up as awesome as that is, and have family celebrations as awesome as they can be sometimes, Uh, to go on Easter egg hunts, as great as the chocolate and the candy and the desserts are, all that is far down the list. This is Resurrection Sunday before it's Easter Sunday. This is about an empty tomb before it is about our empty bellies being filled later on with, with great lunches. May our hearts be drawn in worship, to the one who has risen again, if you need prayer for any reason or would just like to spend some time by yourself in prayer, we, we would welcome you to do so let me let me pray for you as we get ready to dismiss, our heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy and the hope that is ours because of the resurrected Jesus Christ. No longer do we live in fear, no longer does Sorrow become our controlling emotion. When we grieve, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Oh Lord, may the resurrection bring us fresh joy today. For those who might be here and have never met this Jesus, this one who's been a stranger to them, may they know in a fresh way today, may they meet him, May they realize that he doesn't have to be a stranger. He's called the friend of sinners. And we know him as our dear friend, our precious Savior, and lover of our souls. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy... To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. And it's in the precious Jesus, name of Jesus, that we pray all these things.
0: Amen. May God.